Beyond the Fence Line, a podcast brought to you by the Texas Agricultural Land Trust. Created by landowners for landowners, we're proud to play a role in conserving the Texas legacy of wide open spaces. Hi, I'm Brad File. I work as TALT's Gulf Coast Regional Steward. My job is to help connect landowners with resources to support their farm or ranch. Whether it's improving on-the-ground conservation, establishing a conservation easement, or even navigating new streams of income like innovative markets for carbon, water, and other ecosystem services, I'm here to help landowners learn the resources and options available that may fit their specific needs and then navigate the process of implementing them. This work isn't possible without the support from our generous donors. You can help us continue to keep Texas big, wide, and open by giving to TALT today. To do this, visit www.txaglandtrust.org slash support to learn how you can help or give the office a call at 210-899-4178. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Beyond the Fence Line. My name is James Oliver. I am the Director of Engagement here at the Texas Agricultural Land Trust. Um, and we just want to spend a few minutes kind of introducing uh, conservation easements and the 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 land trust is, and some of the philosophies behind the land trust. Um, this afternoon, I have Darren Clark and Andy James with us. Um, Darren, would you introduce yourself and kind of explain your role at the land trust? Sure. Uh, I'm Darren Clark. I'm the CEO and Director of Land Conservation for TALT. Uh, a little bit on my background. Uh, I was born in South Texas, raised on my grandfather's ranch, went off to A&M to get my education in range science, spent 33 years with USDA, with the Natural Resources Conservation Service, uh, the last seven or eight years working in the easement program division in the state office, and the last couple of years I was the state easement program manager. Uh, with that kind of experience, it's helped me to take on the responsibilities with this position with TALT. Uh, we, we do a lot of things under the land conservation aspect, but our, our, our biggest component of that is, is easements, uh, working with private landowners to help them realize their goals or objectives and putting a conservation easement on the property. Very good, thank you. Andy? Yes, uh, Andy James. <laughs> Here, um, I began working uh, for TALT on a part-time basis about a year ago and uh, full-time, went full-time with TALT back in September of last year. Uh, prior to that, uh, I've been, spent most of my career uh, in natural resources over the, about the last 18 years. Uh, spent much of that time working in, uh, as part of, of a research program. I'm also doing some education and outreach as well as uh, working with landowners uh, to help them manage their properties. So, so I also have uh, several years of experience uh, working in real estate and taught presented a great opportunity for me to be able to bring my experience in natural resources and real estate together and be able to provide that service to our, to our customers. Very good. Thank you. 
Um, as I mentioned earlier, um, my role at the Land Trust is the Director of Engagement. I've been with the Land Trust since 2016. Um, that role led me to be initial contact to a lot of land, landowners um, and walk through negotiations with them, uh, as well as do presentations and outreach to various groups around the state. Uh, but these two guys are the guys in the trenches. They're the ones that are down in the details and working in the nitty gritty aspects of the conservation easement world. Um, Darren, let's start with you. Uh, <laughs> very simple question. What is a conservation easement? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so a conservation easement is a, uh, it's a written agreement between the landowner and a uh, holder of that conservation easement, which is typically a, a land trust. It's done on a voluntary basis where a landowner basically is saying, hey, I'm willing to put these restrictions on my property or forego certain rights to the property uh, to be able to protect and enhance the natural resources uh, or possibly even cultural resources that are on the property. Uh, one thing it's not, it's not a sale. The property is not being transferred in ownership. Uh, with a conservation easement, the landowner still retains ownership of the property. And they're also the ones that continue to decide or make decisions on management and what takes place on that property. But as part of the responsibility, the liability for the easement holder, again, typically the land trust, uh, they are required to make an annual visit to the property to make sure that the terms of that conservation easement are being followed and that there are no potential violations on there. Uh, so the landowner does give the uh, easement holder the right to make at least one visit a year to ensure that the easement's being followed and being enforced. Uh, I might say, you know, James, speaking of a land trust, you might take a minute and, and uh, kind of tell us about the Texas Agricultural Land Trust. Absolutely. Um... <clears throat> so, excuse me, uh, Texas Agricultural Land Trust was created in 2007 by representatives from our three largest property rights associations in the state, Texas and Southwestern Cattle Raisers, Texas Wildlife Association, and Texas Farm Bureau. And those, you know, leaders from those organizations came together to try to create a tool um, for private landowners to uh, just have one more resource in the toolbox. Since uh, 2007, the, the Ag Land Trust has helped Texas landowners uh, conserve and protect uh, a little over 250,000 acres uh, all across the state of Texas. Um, we are truly the, the only state-based land trust that works across the state of Texas. There are 31 individual land trusts um, in the state of Texas. Um, but we are the only one also whose only focus is working agricultural lands, open space, uh, farming, ranching, wildlife management, those kinds of things. Uh, and it's, it's really interesting to note that uh, as, as a landowner goes through this whole process, there is uh, a land trust out there in the state that um, each one has its own personality, each one has its own purpose, uh, but it, it's really important that that landowner find that land trust uh, whose goals align with theirs 
and whose, whose long-term purpose aligns with what they want for their property in the long run. Um, so Andy, as, as Darren was walking through uh, what a conservation easement was, he talked about those, those rights, those development rights that a landowner sets aside for the land trust to hold. But he also talked about those rights that a landowner keeps, those, those reserved rights, if you will. Could you walk us through what some of those reserved rights are and kind of how they, what they look like and how they operate? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's one thing to remember as we, as we think about, about conservation easements is Sometimes we get hung up on what are the potential restrictions, but one of the things that's important, I think, to remember is, is these easements, um, there are, are a lot of rights that the landowner maintains. Um, and probably the most important one that, that we focus on here at the Land Trust is those, those management decisions um, associated with the property. And one thing that, that our easements associated with, with, the, with TALT is that we have um, and we want to ensure that there's no management-oriented uh, language within that within that uh, easement document. And so, whether that landowner wants to have a you know cow-calf operation or wants to focus on wildlife or whatever that may be, um, you know that that's their decision and and can keep that. Um, there are uh, other rights associated with with that property. Um, one thing that we get into a lot of times is building envelopes. And so uh, while we do try to you know, limit development, and a lot of times that's what you're giving up is those development rights, um, being able to maintain uh, a building envelope for uh, a future you know, home site on that particular property, or maybe it's for, for kids or grandkids down the road, but um, those can be, those can be um, included into an easement document. Uh, we, we do have uh, a, a minimum acreage uh, that we have kind of as a uses a uh, something to go off of and that that's 140 acres is well and that's that's that number uh, comes from some data provided by the uh, natural resources institute uh, real estate data uh, land trends data and, and that number comes uh, that 140 acres is, is based on that study uh, is kind of the the minimum acreage kind of needed to be able to have a viable um, agricultural enterprise, you know, and be able to, to at least kind of, you know, you may still have to have another job, but that's at least uh, can break even. Um, other rights associated with, with that property, um, things like uh, oil and gas, gas rights. Um, there are instances where, uh, you know, you, you maintain those, those rights to the oil and gas and, and those can that development um, can happen, and, and, you know, based off of uh, when our, our other, you know, surface use agreements put in place and things like that. Um, I would say that I guess right now, and we can, James can maybe go into a little deeper uh, in, into this on the uh, solar and wind uh, issues, but those are some rights that maybe, maybe don't have a lot of answers to um, at, at this point, and so something that, that is being limited. Um, yes, Andy. Um, it's so to date, the IRS has been silent on um, renewable energy, uh, you know, commercial renewable energy. And we've just always felt it was in the, the best interest of the landowners, <clears throat> excuse me, that were interested in doing business with, with TALT, 
that we not allow commercial renewable energy within our easements. Um, should there be some new guidance from the IRS, um, we're, we're more than willing to, to, to look at those things. We just we just always thought it was in the best interest of uh, the landowners that are interested in doing business with Tall to, to leave that out of the easement. Right. I, I will add one more. Um, I think that's really important uh, to keep in mind is the, ultimately the landowner maintains ownership of the property and in, in title in hand. Um, and so, you know, this doesn't prevent you from selling the property if that's what it, you know, if that's something that has to happen in the future um, or anything like that. But the land trust doesn't hold that title, doesn't have anything to, to, to do with that. Thank you. Hey, Andy, so once uh, can, can you walk us through all the steps involved in completing the conservation easement transaction, all those due diligence items that are, are kind of behind the scenes outside the negotiations, those kinds of things that we have to accomplish before we can complete a transaction? Absolutely. So, so some of these things go right back to the, the real estate transaction uh, side of things. Some of those that we commonly think of, um, things like a survey, sometimes if those are needed um, in some instances. Uh, there's going to have to be an appraisal completed. Uh, there's likely going to have to be some mineral, maybe a mineral report uh, or some mineral work done to, to see, make, you know, make sure who, who has ownership and, and who has, has rights to, to those particular uh, mineral rights. Um, there's also going to have to be a, uh, some title work done um, and, and there'll be a title policy uh, in place for the easement. Uh, so those, a couple of those are, are things that, you know, we kind of commonly see on, on regular, on, on other traditional real estate type transactions. Um, there's also a few more that, that maybe go into it. Uh, one is, is a baseline report. And, and this is an, an extremely important document that goes along with the easement that essentially documents um, what's currently um, all the infrastructure and all the um, maybe, you know, building in, buildings and uh, anything else that may be associated with that property. Um, all that gets documented as, as a baseline report to be able to document if there are changes over time. Um, so that's a report that has to be done. Uh, there's also going to be some, some attorney's fees uh, that are included. Uh, we do require um, any of our clients to at least have uh, an attorney uh, review the, the final document uh, to ensure you know what, what's, what's being signed. Um, but we encourage, you know, our, our, our clients to, to work with attorneys to, uh, to make sure that, that their needs and wants are, are being addressed. Uh, trying to think if there's anything else. Those are kind of some of the main, uh, main expenses. I guess a few more of those expenses would be, um, we also have a stewardship donation that is, is one that maybe doesn't get, does, doesn't get talked about enough, but Essentially, that stewardship donation provides uh, the ability for the land trust to be able to make that annual monitoring visit, uh, you know, in perpetuity. And so when we think about, you know, 20, 30, 50 years down the road, someone's got to be able to go out to that property and, and check on that, that, that ranch to make sure that, that the easement is being followed. And so that stewardship donation helps ensure that there's funding available for that to happen. Yeah, I think that's a good point is that um, <clears throat> these conservation easement instruments are perpetual. Um, they do run with the land and the, the land trust 
then this is very important. It goes back to picking the land trust that aligns with, with your goals. That land trust is your partner in that conservation easement in perpetuity. By the same token, the, the land trust has a perpetual obligation <clears throat> to uphold those reserve rights that that landowner set out for that, that property. Um, and so Darren, landowner's done his background. He's, he's looked at all the land trusts in the state or in the area that, that could, he could work with. And he's determined that uh, Texas Agricultural Land Trust mission and his motivation align and has decided to go with TALT. Um, so what's the, the next decision tree? Well, one of the biggies is landowner needs to decide what type of easement they want to go with. <clears throat> and usually that ties into what their motivation is. So landowners normally, I mean, there's a variety of reasons why they find interest in pursuing a conservation easement. Some of the more common ones, you know, landowner may have a piece of property that they put a lot of their blood, sweat, and tears into. They've worked really hard to get the property in the condition it's in, and they want to see that it's protected, that it's not developed somewhere in the future, perhaps after they no longer are, are in control of the property. Uh, that's that's one of the common reasons. Uh, might also be maybe the property is family property. It's been passed along through generations, and they want to keep it in working agriculture. Uh, there's other reasons, uh, successional planning, you know, looking in the future, how that property is going to uh, change ownership, go down through to the heirs. Uh, so it's a consideration that a landowner might use a conservation easement as a tool to help reduce that, um, that, that taxing part of it, um, the burden of that tax to, uh, by using a conservation easement. And, and there's other reasons as well, but those are the some of the more common ones. And then I guess lastly, a very common one is, um, it's, it's quite frequent when a landowner would desire to have some additional cash flow to either install additional conservation practices on that land or do something to increase productivity, or maybe they just need the additional, um, additional cash flow for other financial reasons. But those are, are more, common reasons and based on that kind of helps determine what type of an easement that the landowner uh, might be pursuing. Really that comes down to is it going to be a donated easement? Is it going to be some type of a purchased easement? Or lastly for us falls into what we call a bargain sale where the landowner can get some type of a partial compensation and then in doing so the other part that they don't get compensated for you know, they work with their tax advisor, their CPA, and, you know, they're able to realize the tax benefits from, from doing that. Um, I guess uh, before we get into possible funding opportunities, James, you might take a second. You've, you've worked with a lot of the donated easements. You might share a little bit of your experience on that end. Yeah, so the, the, the donated easements are probably... Uh, for a variety of reasons, the most common easement we've dealt with over the years. Um, donated easements are, are uh, governed by 170, section 170H of the IRS code, um, which allows uh, that, that you be, it's, it's, a, it's considered a charitable donation and probably one of the most uh, beneficial charitable donations. 
it allows you to donate the value of that conservation easement. Um, and you can use that value against, in most cases, 50% of your adjusted gross income for the year in which you give the year a gift and 15 subsequent years. So you can spread it over 16 years if you so desire. If you know you're going to have uh, an income event, maybe a, an oil and gas royalty or a bonus, or uh, maybe on a different piece of property or a different section of the ranch, uh, a renewable energy bonus, you can use this to offset some of those gains. Um, and as you spoke to earlier, Darren, that, that easement value that you donate, when you remove that value from the fair market value, it resets the value for estate tax purposes. Um, so it, it's got a lot of benefits um, if, it, you know, if you're in the position to, to donate that easement. Um, you were talking about, you know, the purchase easements. We, we haven't done as many purchase easements in the state of Texas for very specific reasons. And Darren, can you, you with your vast experience um, on the purchase easement side, can you can you talk to both the availability and the lack of availability of purchase easement funds? Oh, yes, sir, absolutely. So unfortunately, you know, most trusts don't have deep pockets. They don't have funding to compensate a landowner for the for the purchase price of that easement. And because of that, land trusts look for other potential funding sources. Um, two of the more common ones that are used here in Texas is a, a federal source and there's also a state source. So on the federal side of it, which was a program that I've had past experience with, is uh, through the USDA, through the Natural Resources Conservation Service, uh, it's their ASEP program, the Agricultural Conservation Easement Program. And under that program, a landowner can work with and through a land trust to submit an application for federal funding. And if approved, then they can receive up to 50% of the value of that conservation easement. Uh, in other situations, if the property qualifies and is eligible, there is what's called a grassland of special significance and the landowner can receive up to 75% for those special instances. Uh, the, the funding is very limited. Uh, it's an annual allocation, comes from their national headquarters in, in DC. Uh, the other funding source is through the Texas Parks and Wildlife and their farm and ranch protection program uh, because Texas is, uh, operates under a biennium, then every two years that program funding is available, but the funding on that is even more limited than what uh, NRCS has. But those are the two more common funding sources. And then there's also opportunities maybe with a corporation or even a foundation. There are other private funding opportunities that exist, but uh, as conservation easements have continued to uh, show more interest, become more popular. Uh, funding has increased and, you know, taught like other land trusts, we're hopeful that moving forward in the future that the uh, lawmakers will take that into consideration and hopefully increase that level of funding and, and make that more, more available in the future. No, and, and even in my limited time with the land trust is 2016, I've, I've seen the popularity of conservation easements grow, <clears throat> not only from 
the generation holding the land today, owning the land today, but the next generation and younger generations. Um, you know, and it's from estate tax purposes down to the next generation is preserving a legacy, a legacy and, and a heritage. And I know in other states like Colorado, they use a portion of their lottery proceeds to help fund conservation easements. Uh, in Montana, uh, individual counties will issue bonds to fund, help fund the purchase of conservation easements. Um, and so hopefully we get that way, but, you know, we've talked about the value of these things, both in a donated sense and a, and a purchased sense, uh, the value of the conservation easement. Um, Andy, how, how, and it, it was critically important business decision for landowners to, to either donate or to need to sell an easement. So Andy, how do we determine the value of the conservation easement? Okay. Yes, we, we touched on this briefly just just a little bit earlier, but uh, essentially the value um, of an easement will come down to an appraisal, uh, and that, that appraisal has has kind of two two parts to it. Um, one, uh, the first part will be just as any other standard appraisal um, looks at the value of that property um, in its highest and best use um, without an easement in place, and then. They will take uh, the second part of that appraisal will take the um, restrictions or, or um, portions of the easement you know that you're willing to give up for instance maybe the development rights um, it, it will take that into an account and and reduce the value of that property um, and so the value of the easement is actually the difference between those two those two numbers um, and so that uh, Usually, is it expressed as a percentage, but you know, as as a percentage, um, and it could be anywhere from say twenty five to maybe even as much as sixty percent, depending on the uh, the what's being given up in the easement, um, as well as you know what those what the value of those things that you're giving up are. Okay, Andy. Um, along those lines, um, who is responsible for the appraisals? Who orders those appraisals? So that. Who pays for that appraisal um, or who's responsible for, for getting that appraisal? Um, really, there's some differences there between a donated easement and a uh, purchase easement. Um, on a donated easement, uh, the landowner is responsible for uh, requesting and obtaining that appraisal. Uh, on the other hand, on a purchased easement, um, the land trust will actually um, initiate that, that appraisal process. Okay, thank you. Um, you. You touched on it briefly, and I think it's probably um, something that we need to, to really delve into a little bit more. Um, so donating or selling conservation easement is essentially a real estate transaction. And I don't know that landowners are always uh, cognizant of the fact that these are just like buying or selling a piece of property. Uh, in that are costs. Um, and in, it's in most cases uh, not inexpensive either. So, um, you know, you two guys were sitting there closing five easements before the end of last year. You've been through all the costs. Um, give us a little rundown um, on, on, you know, 
remembering that the Agaland Trust is a nonprofit and, you know, our side of the equation, as well as the landowner side of the equation, um, toss it up, either one can take that one. Well, I'll tell you what, Andy, let me start and then I'll, I'll hand it off to you. So James is, is right, you know, even though, even on a donated easement, there is still costs associated with it. And because most land trusts, you know, as I said earlier, just don't have that kind of funding, that capability to cover all the expenses for, a, for an easement transaction, you know, it, it requires a landowner to have to do their part if we're unable to secure those, those funding, those funds from somewhere else. Um, but from be beginning to end, you know, it starts off with the application. You know, when the landowner submits the application, there's also an application fee that goes with that. And that's, that funding is what gives TALT the funding to have staff time spent on that application. So we go through the initial process of getting information together, maps, ownership records, things like that. Things that we use to help, um, help that landowner realize their goals through that conservation easement. And then with that application fee, as we move further along in the process, then there are other fees that come along with that. Um, also goes along with the, uh, as Andy mentioned, the, the stewardship part of it. But there's also all those due diligence items that were mentioned earlier. Um, Andy, you might talk about, you know, the cost of an appraisal and, and maybe even a survey, some of those other due diligence items that, you know, are required to be able to execute the uh, conservation easement. Okay. Yeah. So going back to some of those due diligence items, just to maybe kind of, and, and these numbers are not hard set in stone, but just maybe some, you know, an, an estimate that, that you may have to be, you know, factor in um, something like a baseline report, uh, you know, it's going to vary in price based on kind of the size of the property, but it could be anywhere from $3,000 up to $8,500 uh, on, on a bigger piece of property. Uh, your your mineral reports, uh, if those are needed on appraisal, you know, those could run anywhere from $2,500 up to $3,500 uh, a piece. Um, a survey obviously is going to be somewhat factored into the size of the property, but, you know, those those could be anywhere from probably two to 5,000 um, on, on a general property um, that didn't have any kind of special uh, needs associated with it. Um, the, the title policy, uh, it'll be, you know, it's, it's set by the state based on the value of the easement. So um, the more, you know, the more valuable that easement, the higher that cost could be. And that could be anywhere from five to $20,000, you know, depending on the value of that easement. So um, definitely, you know, each of those items are, you know, have a pretty significant cost associated with them. And I might add to that. Uh, additionally, I think Andy mentioned earlier that, you know, we do encourage the landowner to work through their own attorney to represent them and, and protect their interests. So there's obviously costs associated with that. Uh, TALT has to go through, you know, our own attorney and there's, there's fees associated with that as well. Uh, and it just depends on, you know, if the title's clean and uh, not very complicated, it's uh, relatively easy easement to execute and, and get closed, then, you know, and, and also the time timeliness of it. You know, if you do it in the middle of the year versus doing it towards the end of the year when, you know, the title company and the attorneys and everybody's trying to, you know, enjoy 
time with their families and holidays it ends up costing more. So it's just something that, you know, even if it's a donated easement, there's still going to be associated cost with that. Yeah, and they add up in addition to the to the stewardship endowment, which, by the way, when the founders set this up, um, their idea and their intention was that to be a one-time ask, that we never have to go back to the landowner for additional monies um, to help uphold our obligation and their, you know, their partnership with us. And so um, it's kind of hard to explain. There's no per acre set fee. It's, it's every easement is different. Um, every easement has a different profile, uh, both motivation profile and a risk profile. And those are just some of the things uh, that go into determining that stewardship endowment. But it's as individual as each each conservation easement transaction is. It's as individual each landowner we deal with. So, uh, but the point of it is this, these, these can add up, these fees can add up and it's something that I know over the years uh, through our correspondence with the landowners once we start into these transactions and, and also from initial conversations that we really, really try to make as clear as we can. Some of it we just can't, it's, you know, uh, depending on the complexity of, of mineral ownership, for example, or the, the title ownership, um, that can drive, you know, higher legal fees. It's just incredibly important that we get it right the first time. Um, so that when it's closed, there, there are no questions from anyone. Um, what else? What else can you guys think of? Well, you know, a conservation easement is just another tool in the conservation toolbox. It's, uh, as we keep saying it, it's, it's perpetual. It is forever. It stays with the property, no matter who owns the property. It's a way to protect those natural resources. And, and uh, in most cases, keeping work in agriculture, lands and agriculture. And typically that's the objective of the landowner. And it also meets with the mission of TALT and uh, it gives us an opportunity you know, at the end of the day, to help that landowner achieve what they're trying to accomplish. And uh, in doing so, we also make sure that, you know, they stay out of trouble with the IRS. We want to do everything we can to follow the, the guidelines, the law, and, and make sure that, uh, you know, we comply with the IRS. So when it's all done, it's a, it's a win-win for all three of us, the landowner, the land trust, and the IRS, the, the federal government, for that matter. Or to comply with funding sources requirements. Good point. Uh, Absolutely. You know, we're, we're very fortunate in that our, our main funding source through the NRCS is a working lands easement, and um, those those easement documents and, and their requirements align with with our mission and most of our landowners' missions very well. Um, but there are some different funding sources that have different requirements uh, that that we have to tailor these easements to as well as landowner wishes. It's it's kind of um, negotiating <laughs> uh, with two different sides. Yeah, you know, and to follow up on that, it's a very good point. I'm not sure you mentioned this, but, you know, a conservation easement is not a one-size-fits-all. It's not a cookie cutter. You know, we work with each landowner individually to tailor that the language in that conservation easement, like I keep saying, to, to meet their goals and objectives, but but doing it where it also meets the mission of the land trust and again, meets IRS rules and regulations, along with the funder, if the funder is involved. 
Um, but yeah, it's it's not a it's not a cookie cutter, and, and it does give the landowner flexibility. And there are some, you know, very serious decisions that need to be made to go into developing that conservation easement because you know it is perpetual. It's not only going to affect the current landowner; it's going to affect future generations. And so, like you mentioned, James, we want to get it right from the onset. Yes, absolutely. How long it takes to to get a, an easement closed? Typically, honestly, from the introduction of this notion of a conservation easement uh, until the closing of a conservation easement, on average, is about three years. Uh, it's kind of important to go through the chronology of that and, and how we get to these things. Um, and it may be uh, a neighbor, it may be a professional, an accountant, an attorney, a state attorney, or someone that introduces the concept. It may be a member of talk staff at an outreach event or, you know, a friend of a friend that introduces this, this idea to landowners. And um, we really try hard to get to the kitchen table with them. And, and I mean that literally where we can sit down and start talking about their motivations and their desires and their long-term plans for that piece of property. Um, and it, it happens. It's, it's just, typical of any of these conversations, uh, you know, people get motivated, they see the benefits of it, they, they understand the, the preservation of open lands and opportunity and legacy and heritage and generational. Um, as we start to talk through what goes into negotiating conservation easement um, and this concept of perpetuity lands on them, uh, it really, and, and I think it's the best thing, really makes the process very slow and deliberative and thoughtful. So in the meantime, uh, if a landowner decides to go down this path, they're going to make an application to the Agland Trust, to, to this, this team right here, the transactions team. Um, we're going to write a synopsis of it. We're going to present it to a subcommittee of the board. Um, I think we do a very good job on the front end um, of vetting both you know mission appropriate and motivation appropriate and things that align both landowner and land trust um, before those get to that subcommittee um, the subcommittee will approve uh, the staff continuing work on it or or not um, like i said i think we do a very good job of vetting those things um, so that when they do get to the subcommittee we feel as staff that they're very mission appropriate um, and at that point, we, we signed a non-binding agreement between the land trust and the landowner that tries to lay out each of these steps, tries to lay out each of these expenses to the best of our ability. Um, and it's, it's like renovating a house. You don't know what's going to happen when you tear down that first wall. You don't know what's behind the wall. So we, we do the best we can. We, we really do. Once again, we're nonprofit. We ask for staff reimbursement. Um, there's no financial incentive for the land trust. Uh, it's just, you know, our mission and our obligation to protect those development rights for that landowner. Then we start into, on the front side, on the landowner facing side, we start into these discussions about reserve rights and how this document is going to impact your property for generations. That's where it starts to go slow. And it should, because there's a lot of thoughtful um, deliberation that has to go on because you're making decisions for great-grandchildren. Uh, or successor owners in some cases. So, um, you know, 
behind the scenes, uh, Andy and Darren are the proverbial ducks on the water, just gliding along effortlessly and paddling like hell, uh, you know, trying to put all the pieces together, the tidal work, uh, the mineral work, um, baseline work, uh, all the legal work, all these things, so that when the landowner is comfortable with that conservation easement, um, we can get ready to go to the title company and close it. And typically what happens is we start into these negotiations um, and we highly recommend this if, if they're available and they're interested is to include the family and the next generation in these discussions. Uh, we've, we've got one we're working on right now that the, the, the ownership generation said the heirs are going to, they're going to negotiate this. We're not going to be here. We're not going to have to live with it. So our heirs are going to do that. And, and I think that's, that's a really wise decision. That's not always the case. Um, but typically what happens, those landowners kind of get quiet for a while and they help consult professionals and they consult friends and they consult family. And then they come back to the table and they're ready to go. So that's, that's a bit of the chronology of it. But on average, uh, if you're just introducing the topic of conservation easement, it's about a three-year um, process. Pretty busy. Um, you know, as far as this just being an introduction of conservation easements, I think we probably covered a lot of a lot of topics this afternoon, a lot of details. Uh, if someone were interested in more information, um, what should they do, Darren? Well, I think the easiest thing to do is to get on the internet, go to www.texasaglandtrust.org, and on there they can find more information about easements, more information about TALT, and there's contact information either by email or phone for any of the staff or a direct line to the office. Okay, very good. Well, listen, we appreciate everybody being with us at uh, Beyond the Fence Line this afternoon. Andy, Darren, thank you for your time and your expertise. Um, and we look forward to all you guys joining us uh, for our next podcast. So until next time, thank you and adios.